Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. And today we're talking about a subject that is very close to my heart and one that I think is critically important for our world today. We are going to talk about the role of music and music therapy in healthcare. And joining me today is Galen McCormick, director of Eastman Performing Arts Medicine. Galen McCormick was a member of the Rochester Philharmonic's double bass section from 1995 to 2017. After losing her hearing in 2017, she began a career shift into arts administration and nonprofit leadership. Since 2018, she has been the director of Eastman Performing Arts Medicine, a collaborative program of the University of Rochester Medical Center and the Eastman School of Music. EPAM seeks to enhance the lives of our community through the many intersections of arts and healthcare. In addition to her work in arts advocacy, Galen has published multiple books on bass bow pedagogy, as well as duet compositions. She was a faculty member of Nazareth College and joined the Eastman Community Music School in 2001. As a member of the Arts Leadership Program at the Eastman School of Music, she teaches career skills for use both on and off stage. Mirroring her passion for arts education and arts in health advocacy, she is the incoming president of the International Society of Bassists and holds a board seat with the National Organization for Arts in Health. And she was so generous to come and speak with us today, and I'm excited to talk with her all about this wonderful work that she's doing. So Galen McCormick, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thank you so much, Christine. It's so nice to join you today. I'm just so excited to learn everything about EPAM. Let's just jump right into it. What is EPAM and what does it do? Eastman Performing Arts Medicine, and we'll shorten that up to EPAM as we talk for sure, because it's a mouthful. <laughs> we, we're based on a four-pillar program, and we mirrored this off Houston Methodist Hospital's Center for Performing Arts Medicine. And so those four pillars are healthcare for performing artists. You know, we know that Sports medicine, for instance, if an athlete is injured, we know they need specific care immediately. We know this about artists, but we haven't had a great way to present that to them. So here in this community, we have a lot of doctors who have a lot of experience working with Garth Fagan Dance or Chiva Theater or the Rochester Philharmonic or the Eastman School of Music. So we've developed a really simple way for people to get connected and to kind of jump the line to get into those services quickly if it's impairing their ability to perform. The second part of our program is how we can integrate arts broadly throughout the hospital landscape. Ultimately, this will be healthcare, but right now we're working within the University of Rochester Medical Center, which has many hospitals for us to deploy the artists. So that could be music in the lobby. Um, it could be music directly to patients through an iPad program. So we keep them safe. We keep the artists out of the hospital. And there's a lot of ways this is going to show up with visual arts as well. There's a lot of room in most hospitals for improvement in the environment and using the arts to enhance your experience. The third pillar of our program is creative arts therapy. And I'm really lucky that here music therapy has been existing in our hospital for over 20 years, but it's been a very small program and it's only been for children. And there's no magic about music therapy in children. Like music therapy can help adults just as well. So we've been developing the infrastructure and the funding streams to be able to increase music therapy and also to help people understand that that therapist with a guitar is different from my artist who's in the lobby playing their guitar. They have very, very different roles and very different training. 
Um, and our fourth pillar is research about the impact of arts on health. And this is a really timely thing for us to be studying. You know, the, the National Institutes of Health, um, Francis Collins and Renee Fleming, got together to think about this just a few years ago. Like, what could we do to really formalize the study of why music therapy works, for instance, or why, for instance, having a better artistic environment around you when you're recovering, why does that make your recovery go better? So we're just getting that fourth pillar off the ground, but I can talk more about that if you want to know specifics about some of the really cool research studies we're going to get going. Yeah, I was actually hoping that we could talk about that for sure. Um, before we do, I would love to hear what you were meaning by the music in the lobby, because I've played the piano in hospital lobbies before, and I've seen the changes in people. I just remember very clearly this one time, this elderly patient was wheeled down by their nurse, and he was in such a bad way and just so angry. But then after sitting and listening for a while, he mentioned to me that he was in much less pain just from relaxing and listening. But that's completely different from an actual music therapist in the room. Can you explain the difference between those two things? Absolutely. And first of all, I'm really glad you had that experience because sometimes mm -hmm. when we play in the lobby, people are coming and going. And so you might not see that ripple. But when someone can sit and you can see them for a while, it is really transformative most of the time. I mean, we have to acknowledge there are times that's not going to reach the person for whatever reason, but <laughs> I'm really glad that you had that experience. So the artists who play in our lobby, um, we train them through a program that was developed in collaboration with other performing arts medicine groups like Houston Methodist. And they, they do what it sounds like you did, which is to kind of feel the environment out, sense what's happening, and pay a lot of attention to what kind of responses you're getting. Um, generally keeping the music pretty calm, pretty knowable, if that makes sense. So we're not going to go to anything yeah. really crazy contemporary or fast and loud. Um, and when you think about entering the hospital, I'm terrified of hospitals. So I think it's hilarious that I've wound up working full time in one. Um, <laughs> one thing I love about it is right where we do the music, you come in from the garage, you come around this corner and now there's, you know, a big atrium, it's nice and light and bright, and there's a human being playing the music. We have had a player piano for a while. And when I first got my job, I started interviewing people who worked in the area about the player piano, and it was 100%, please unplug that thing. <laughs> I said, why? They're like, it plays the same songs over and over again. We can't control the volume. I thought, it's also weird. You're hearing music and seeing the cues move, and there is no one there. And that's a little strange. Yeah, it can be disorienting a little bit. <laughs> so our goal in the lobby is just to provide a more welcoming experience. And I have seen some studies that have talked about different kinds of recorded music, but I'm a complete believer, and I will study this at some point, that there's a difference in seeing someone like you actually making the music and feeling that connection of the sound literally being produced by your actions or your breath if you're playing a wind instrument. Now, we can't call it therapy because we don't have a clinical goal. So that's really where music therapy starts to differ is they've done at least an undergraduate, often a master's degree in music therapy. There's an extensive um, internship training program. I believe it's 1,200 hours that they do to complete their certification before they sit for a board exam. So really, the music therapist is partnered with the physician or nurses, the clinical care team, and they have very specific clinical goals 
It could be behavioral. You know, it could be that, uh, let's say, a teen is really struggling with an acquired disability. They may use songwriting to help them process that emotional work. Um, it can be behavioral. A lot. I'm just thinking children because we have a lot of children's uh, music therapists, but a lot of kids are afraid of needles, and I am too. And so you can use the music therapy as a way to both distract them, but help them develop that skill if they have to get needle sticks on a regular basis of, you know, this is going to be okay. And just providing that focal point away from what's happening. Um, and there's also really interesting ways watching them work with physical therapy that, you know, if you're regaining your ability to walk, it's a lot more enjoyable to walk with music that's being played for you at the tempo that you can walk to. And what we've seen is that the patients will walk longer if they've got that music. And the music therapist can also use a psych element of like, let's write the words talking about your journey out of here. And um, it's just really beautiful to watch that happen, that we can kind of overcome some of the pain and anxiety issues by having a diversion, but with a very specific goal. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that's beautiful to have a patient write lyrics explaining their own journey because our emotions and our physical are so connected. And to have a therapy that brings that together, it's that's a beautiful idea. Yeah. Now, how about insurance when it comes to music therapy? Is that part of your pillar too? You said something about funding and... Um, I know insurance is a big part of funding. Do you do you ever dive into that mess at all? So, yes. <laughs> can you see the weight on me? I sure can. Music therapy is almost universally not reimbursed. And it's a right. very large conversation that's been happening on a national scale for a long time because really music therapy should be considered the same as physical therapy or respiratory therapy. Like this isn't, I'm afraid that because it's music, people see it as a nice extra. And it's really not. It is a therapy. Right. So we're part of that conversation. You know, should this be something that becomes reimbursable? And the flip side of that coin, I'm constantly reminded is, if you do that and a patient can't pay for it, now what? So we're yes. really examining where is it worth spending our energy on this? Should we see if it can become reimbursable? And we make it possible for folks who can't afford it or who don't have insurance, but it's, it's to me, it's one of the great mistakes right now in our health insurance is that we don't view that as the therapy with a capital T, like all the other therapies. Right. And that's probably where all of this uh, research that EPAM is doing, I'm sure, will help move that along, right? It will, but we're not the first ones. You know, you can do any kind of PubMed search and see that there's a lot of research that already supports music therapy in all kinds of very specific situations. And so I'm a little bit puzzled as an outsider why that hasn't already moved the needle on the insurance, either the insurance conversation or on the return on investment from the hospital. So that's another one of those very boring spreadsheet places that I get to go where it's like, well, it's a little hard to justify, but I could say, for instance, you know how I just set needle sticks with the child. If mm -hmm. having that music therapist there makes that appointment take two minutes instead of 25, you can actually put a number on that. Like, what does that mean for the staff's time? In addition to the psychological trauma and the stress for the parents and all those things. Right. So there is a way for us to parcel out and say, this is absolutely beneficial financially it's still a conversation that we have to push forward, though. Yeah, I can see that being an uphill battle and pretty tough. So it's a wonderful thing that your hospital system is so receptive to that. How did they become so receptive to these type of interventions? 
part of it is that just the education of our staff. And since it has been in the children's hospital for 20 years, and we are just now reaching one year of having an adult population, a lot of it is, again, just explaining that this isn't just a nice visit to hear some music, that there's an actual clinical goal. But I tell you, once the staff get it, it's suddenly we get all these referrals. <laughs> Our poor music therapist is overwhelmed and having to say, okay, let's only focus on this type of problem. But I do feel like as that becomes more part of our culture, it will just continue to flourish. Oh, yes. Now, what is your role as director? I feel like I'm the, the, the what do you call it? The Swiss Army knife, right? A little bit of everything <laughs> right now. <laughs> the biggest thing I am is the connector of all the different pieces. So at the University of Rochester, the Eastman School of Music is downtown, has been for a long time. We just celebrated 100 years. Um, beautiful historic building, but it's five or six miles away to what we call the River Campus, which is the liberal arts campus. And then it's another half mile or so to this medical complex, which is the hospitals, the cancer center, the School of Medicine, the School of Dentistry. And then another little maybe quarter mile, there's the Neuroscience Institute, the School of Nursing. And so really, literally, I drive a lot. <laughs> because really, once I meet people and I talk about the power of music in particular, because we're partnered with the Eastman School, when mm -hmm. I start talking about that, it's very easy for them to say, oh, for instance, I can see how the nursing students could really benefit from this. So starting last summer, we started a very uh, compressed schedule, we call that like an intensive training program to reduce the number of months it takes to get your nursing license so that we can deal with the fact that we are missing a lot of nurses right now, right? We've had a big outflow nationally of people leaving the nursing right. profession. And so we started providing lunchtime opportunities to have concerts in this beautiful courtyard and just to bring the students to a place where it's okay to work, it's okay to talk and eat lunch, but also you have this common ground with the faculty and the staff and to build community. So yeah, so my job really is to run around everywhere and <laughs> say, how can I wow. help you and think about that? And as I've been meeting people over the years, the research projects are kind of coming up organically that cancer researchers said to me, I, I hear you're interested in starting research, but what would you do with cancer? And I had in my back pocket this study using drum circles that one of the Eastman alumni has done down in North Carolina. So it's a little bit of that being ready when the conversation arises, but I thoroughly enjoy getting to meet these brilliant people I work with all over, you know, Rochester. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. So are you ready to tell me about that drum circle? You said you have to have it in your back pocket, but now I'm, I'm completely totally ready to tell you. About circles, yeah. <laughs> Please tell me about this drum circle and cancer. <laughs> this sounds so amazing. So, I mean, we, I think we've all seen drum circles like at the beach or in, you know, uh, yeah. Washington Park in New York City. And the idea that uh, John Beck is the name of the man who came up with this intervention, the idea is simply that when we're sitting together and making music together, and especially because we're actually making the music, we're not just singing, we're like using our bodies to do that. There's something that's happening. My guess is it's a distraction from the pain, but it's also being in community and supporting each other and sitting in a circle and seeing each other. So he did this study in a hospital that was one-on-one. -on -one. He would go in, um, stem cell patient would be in the room, he'd bring them a small drum and they would do some back and forth. They would accompany songs together and they might make up lyrics as well and drum this out. But when he told me about that, I thought, well, that's really interesting. What if it was a whole group of people who were on their survivor journey? So we've been talking about it here and we even did a, a 
it's not really a simulation. We actually did the entire protocol with the staff of the cancer center. And then you can feel the energy in the room in the first five minutes. There's something about having fun, making music. There's no wrong notes. There's no wrong thing you can do. And it was great. They still talk about it. So I'm looking forward to finishing up the protocol and getting through those stages. And then we'll be testing that with our focus will be, does it help chemo brain? And I feel like the upside is if it doesn't, there won't be a problem. You still will have had a really good time. <laughs> but I'm really hopeful <laughs> that just that kind of oxygenation that happens when you're thinking about and making music, that that may have some impact on chemo brain. Oh, maybe. Let's find out. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, it doesn't hurt anything if it doesn't. They've had a fun time doing exactly. it. <laughs> when is the study being done? Still TBA because we're still working through that thorny process of you know, they look at your protocol and say, but what about this? And what about that? So I think it'll just be another month or two. Um, we have a whole bunch of drums down in the uh, storage area of the cancer building. And I've got the person to lead it. I think, I think we're very close, but I, I'm hesitant to say it will be this month. Well, I hope that you'll uh, keep me posted with what the results are of the study. Absolutely. Yeah. You said there were a couple. Is there another study that you're working on? Yeah. Right now, there's a study also at the same cancer center uh, working on music therapy, I believe we said it was only going to be women just to limit the population. So we're working with women with breast cancer who receive radiation. And the the problem we're looking at is that it's very painful, which I'm grateful I don't know that, but I have heard that from people who have been patients. And that if you move around at all while you're in there, they have to recalibrate the machine, which just takes longer and it's more uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. so we wondered if there was a way to provide music therapy support. So you make a playlist together. You prepare for this before you ever start your radiation treatments. There's a, a dry run period where they make sure they fit you to the, the thing that holds you in place, the cage. I don't know what to call that. And the list is created together to support their journey. And we're looking to see, like, does that help with anxiety? Because you know how long it's going to last. You know these are musics that you like. And so we just got that off the ground. Finally, we pitched it pre-COVID. It was accepted. And then there's no way, right? We're going to pull a second person into the room during COVID. Oh, of course not. But yeah, we're just getting started collecting data on that. And I'm very hopeful that it will show that it's a really good support for people receiving radiation. Yes. So they make this playlist. Does the playlist last the exact same amount of time as the treatment? I believe that's correct. I believe that they create a list that's at least long enough to go the full length of the treatment. Oh, so that could help somebody as they're laying there. If something hurts, they'll be like, okay, I know I'm on this song, which means I only have 15 minutes left. I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe that's part of it. And the other part of it is that in the days between your dry run and when you actually start, you listen to that playlist kind of as a way of psyching up for like, I can do this. I can get through this. I've got the support. So we, we'll see, but I'm very hopeful. There was a lot of good research that it went into developing that protocol. I think that'll be great. I hope that works out. I hope it does too. And I, I suspect sort of like drum circles that there isn't a downside to it. So right. if we don't find out what we thought we did, maybe we will find out something else. Can I tell you something funny? Um, as we were trying to figure out how we'll play the playlist for people, like they can't have headphones or anything, but the machines actually have a built-in audio system we discovered that they had Spotify for the patients, but it wasn't a paid account. So you'd be listening to this great music and you'd get blasted with an ad. And I thought, oh, <laughs> oh friends, no. <laughs> just please think about what's going on. Here. Let's just pay them. <laughs> but this is one of those times where all you have to do is ask the nurses, like, what's 
you know, what's what's something that you wish was different? Just like if if everything is possible, what could I do to help you? And when you hear that, it's like, okay, we can pay for a premium account. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm glad that they were honest and you asked them. gears a little bit. You have a very personal story when it comes to health and to music. Would you mind sharing what it was that made you shift into this administration position? Yeah, yeah, I'm always happy to. Um, I, I actually had normal hearing growing up and I knew I wanted to be a classical musician and double bass is where I found myself oddly when I was a teenager. <laughs> uh, so it, it was really, it's hard work. It's a lot of hard work, but it was really something I enjoyed very much. And, um, you know, I pretty quickly won a job here with the Rochester Philharmonic when I was 25. And that was just great. You know, it was really great playing these concerts. And I was in my early mid thirties when I started to have Meniere's disease symptoms show up. I was getting really dizzy. This, my hearing was fluctuating up and down, but it would always come back. And we thought Meniere's often does not result in deafness. It often just does this for a while. You yo-yo back and forth with your balance and your hearing, and then it stabilizes. But I'm an outlier. And so 10 years it took of this kind of yo-yoing and the hearing would never come back as much. And to be honest, it was kind of a relief when this ear went deaf because I wasn't, I didn't have these conflicting sounds coming in that oh. sometimes this would be kind of watery or it would be the wrong pitch and I'd have to put in a hear, uh, earplug. So I actually moved from a part-time position to winning a national audition with the Philharmonic with single-sided deafness. And I didn't tell anybody because I didn't, I kind of felt like it's none of their business. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. But the truth is, I mean, in the performing arts and especially in music, having any kind of hearing loss is really perceived as a huge thing against you that whether it's you've done something wrong to acquire that hearing loss or you can't be trusted with pitch or whatever it is, I knew it was going to be problematic. So I just didn't talk about it, kind of bluffed a lot. And I think people who are losing their hearing know what I'm talking about. They you just kind of smile and nod at times and hope that you didn't just agree to like pay someone a lot of money. And <laughs> so, you know, that went along okay for a few years. And then very suddenly my right ear also presented with Meniere's disease. And again, that's an outlier thing. You don't always get it in both ears. So that created some more problems with um, just balance, but also pitch. I have wild pitch distortion in this ear that has remained so by 20, the very, very late 2016, it was Christmas Day, I woke up completely deaf. And sometimes that happens, which I'm actually used to, which is weird to say. Uh, but this lasted and lasted. And we were on vacation from the orchestra, and it was time to go back to work. And I'm like, I am still completely deaf. And I don't want to tell them that's why. Oh, my goodness. And I'm feeling like, what am I supposed to do now? You know, I had to ask my husband to call the personnel manager and say, she's too sick to come in. And this went on for weeks and then months and nearly a year um, with us using voice to text. We started learning sign language. I was like, I don't know what's happening. My doctor doesn't know what's happening. Will it end or won't it? And then all of a sudden one day it just all came back. Really? And a week later went away again. I was like, oh okay, this is, what, what am I supposed to do with this now if this is going to be this inconsistent? So I appealed to my ENT and said I'd really like to be implanted with a cochlear implant because at least on my deaf side, I would have a steady source of sound. Okay. And I know that it's not going to sound good. I've done all this research. And so I qualified for that. And and in 2018, I was implanted with 
um, an advanced bionics cochlear implant. And it's great. <laughs> great. And yeah, music is terrible, but it's really great. But it's at that point that I thought, okay, I can have enough stability now with my hearing that I can make this shift. So what do I want to do? And during that time leading up to like, am I getting my hearing back or not? Um, a friend of mine said, I think, you know, I think you should go play in the hospital because I was really missing playing and I play fine, but I just can't hear it. Right. I can't, I can't match anybody on stage. And so I was like, why would anybody want to hear a bass player? <laughs> but at the same time, like there's that little piece of me that was like, well, I don't know. Why not? Like, why not go try this? And so I, you know, I made arrangements with the cancer center and I went every week and it was terrifying at first because I can't hear myself very well. And I don't know how loud I am. And I don't know if people like what I'm playing, but when you said, you know, you played in the lobby and you see that shift, once I started to see that, I would see people really focus and like their shoulders will come down and they might start to fall off to sleep, which, you know, if I was on stage, I'd be like, hey, I'm playing here. <laughs> but totally when I different. saw that in the hospital, oh my heart, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. This is real service. This is yeah. real service to the community. This is really different from playing on stage. And so suddenly, I think it took about four or five weeks before I went, this is what music is for me. This is what it is now. It's service to the community. And it's, I just really loved it. I loved meeting all the staff. I loved meeting patients, you know, and family members. And that, I don't know if that trickled up to the dean of the Eastman School or if that was just a coincidence that that was around the time they decided they wanted to launch this program. Um, knew through the grapevine that I wasn't working and I was looking to come back into the field and I I had some nonprofit management experience, so it was one of those, we have a short-term funding, would you be willing to try this on for a few months? And I thought, I have absolutely nothing to lose. I don't have to move. I know all these people. I know the school. I'm an alum of the school. I obviously know the hospital now. And, you know, I'm really interested in how we serve the community. And it just, it turned out to be even better than I could have imagined, getting to meet all these people and sort of on the sly, I get to do hearing advocacy as well, because I constantly have to say, you know, can you put on captions or can you face me when you speak? And just embracing that rather than running away from it when I was a performer, just embracing like, this is just who I am. There's nothing wrong with me, you know, having to say that I have this disability. But that was a pretty uphill battle to get to that point. Hmm. So it is not common then for people to lose their hearing completely. That's what I understand, that that is not common. Have you run into anybody else who's had an experience like yours? I have. Yeah, just one or two people, though. Yeah. So it was a year that you were kind of hiding this. That must have been difficult or, you know, just kind of unsettling. How did you deal with it during that year that you were trying to still live that one life where your body was saying, no, we need to shift to this life now? Some of it, it was a kind of slow transition. So I, I also teach my instrument mostly to kids 18 and under. And I I found when I was thinking about, you know, I can't go play on stage right now. And I said to myself, you should just give up your teaching post until this settles out. And my whole body went, oh, like as if someone sat on me. It was so strange. And then I was like, okay, uh, how about I keep teaching as a deaf person? And my whole body went, oh, I'm like, oh, okay, that's weird. <laughs> so... I reached out to a few students and I'd had most of them for three, four or five years. So they've known me for a long time. And I said, have a weird proposal for you. What would you think about working together? You can quit at any time and go to another teacher. 
if we feel like it's not working out, I will absolutely stop teaching. And to my complete surprise, all of my students said, yeah, sure, let's try it. And we did the phone voice to text if I couldn't understand what they were saying. And I wasn't hearing them, but I was seeing them. So it gave me this transition period where I didn't have to give up everything with music. And it just kind of allowed me to test the water of like, well, if I wind up fully deaf, there's ways, right? I might not stay as a music teacher, but there's ways to communicate. There's ways to be helpful. Um, and then I, I kind of did the same thing with the Philharmonic. That's sort of like um, physical body testing. I don't know. One day I was thinking about it and I thought, what if my hearing came back tomorrow and I never went back to the Philharmonic and I just felt like released and free? Oh, that's interesting. And then I, so same question. Okay. So what if my hearing came back tomorrow? I'd go right back to the orchestra. It's like, okay, buddy, I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got to play for over 20 years in the orchestra, and that is a full career in many ways. Absolutely. I've done a lot of tours. I've done a lot of recordings. Like, I know what that is. I can share that with people, and I'm still young enough to do something else. But it, it was a really interesting moment, and I, I shared that with my husband that night when he came home. I said, how would you feel? My hearing came back, and I never went back to the orchestra. He said, absolutely fine. Great. <laughs> I really, it was good to have that kind of, like, that confidence that we're not shooting at this because... I mean, it looks glamorous, right? Life on stage looks glamorous. It's not, but it looks it. <laughs> and it's nice to be able to say, you know, I was the only woman in the bass section the whole time I was there. It's nice to have that little feather in my cap and it's okay to let it go too. Oh, that's wonderful. I love it that you were able to listen to your body. So when you started performing at the hospital and you get this like light bulb, did your body have these reactions like, oh, this is what I must do now? <laughs> it was slower than that. Um, it did take a couple of weeks and it didn't happen at the hospital. I think it happened when I was driving home one day and I was having the usual conversation with myself. You know, you probably like this too, right? When you're driving, oh, you're yes. like, the very first day I went into play and I was more nervous than when I auditioned for the Philharmonic, I kept saying to myself, no one here plays a bass. It's okay. It's going to be fine. <laughs> right? Like, you're going to be fine. Like, psyching myself up. I unpack my bass, and this guy comes up to me. He's like 80 years old. He goes, I play the bass too. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Man. How long have you played? Wait, wait. He goes, oh, I've played for like 40 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you, universe, for giving me that. Like, he's actually going to know if I can play or not. What are the chances? <laughs> right? What are the chances? Um, but so that was like driving home and you're like, see, you shouldn't do this anymore. You should do something else. I'm like, he didn't say I was terrible. But I didn't ask him, you know, I was smart enough to do that. Right. But the conversation with myself after a while was, uh, this was also day one. A woman came in on her cell phone and sat like uh, just right next to me. Maybe she's a foot away because the, the back of the chair is facing me and I'm playing out mm -hmm. here. And she stayed on her cell phone for the entire hour that I played. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so those, those drive home conversations begin. Wow, your ego is really wrapped up in people liking you. Huh. What, you know what? I realized a week later, they're all the seats were empty. She could have sat anywhere. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm interpreting that as she was enjoying it. And then when I started to see people more often, especially if they happened to come on the day that I was. Um, playing. Some people would. It was nice to see them every other week just to sort of know they're still making it. And just to see that like, oh, like they recognize me. They're excited to listen for a little bit. And But it wasn't my ego anymore about, oh, they're happy to see me. It was more like, oh, I can offer this to John or to Mary. Like I can, I can do something right now because otherwise I feel really like, what does music do? 
that's a whole philosophical conversation we can have. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? It was really, I really felt useful after a year of feeling like, where is everything going? Yeah. That must have been just such a relief. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I mean, like, I couldn't figure out what I was going to do long term. It was volunteer. But it definitely was part of that that change of what could music mean in my, my life? You know, that what could music mean in our culture? Yeah. And now you are spreading that to your community. Yeah, absolutely. It's bittersweet in some ways that we've just completed four years because some of my original musicians are now graduating with doctorates or they're graduating with their masters and they're leaving. And one of them in particular, we were talking the other day, he's like so flexible. I'll send him into any situation and know that he can handle it and he can give me feedback on whether that's something that we should continue or not. And he said, you know, preparing for my doctoral recital, I now think of the audience much more personally than I did. They're not just coming to hear me play. They're all having struggles or stress and difficulties I can't know. So what is the arc of my recital? What do I hope to give them? It's like, wow, that's amazing. So I think he he sort of capped it all as I've become a more generous performer. And I was like, that that's amazing right there. If if that's something you can talk about on the program, great. (laughs) That's what I was wondering because Eastman is a very, very competitive school and you have some very A-type personalities going there and studying music there. And I can just imagine the change doing something like this can create for them and their own mental health and their own connection with their music. Have you seen that a lot with a lot of the students? Yes. So I see sort of two camps. They're all competitive, right? They're all high flyers is what I call them. (laughs) If you got into Eastman, (laughs) you are really in the top 1%. And the people who want to come to the hospital, you know, we train them. I go with them to sort of assess how it's going, give them feedback. And there's kind of the two camps. There's the ones like the person I just mentioned who say, oh, like the light bulb goes off for them. It doesn't have to be the hardest thing I know. In fact, it could be sometimes folk songs and easy things or just improvising in a gentle way. And then there's the ones that come in and really cannot break out of performance mode who go, why didn't anybody clap? Why did you make me stop playing that Allegra movement? And it's, you know what, it's okay. That's just not the right environment for them. You know, so I just kind of gently say like, now's not the right time for this. That's all right. I'm looking forward to this coming fall. I'm writing a course right now on, this is an overview of what we do and how people can be involved so that ultimately they can choose one of those four tracks and pursue that as a certificate. And I actually would like to work more with the performers who have that kind of um, brush up against their own ego and their own sense of what the music means to them in the hospital, not to break them down, but just to have them become more aware of like, what's your orientation? Why, why does this matter in this situation? Just to give them more context, because right now it's it's not a lot, right? You know, they come and play, and if it's not working out after a couple of tries, I'm like, let's just pause this for a year and talk about it later. So mm-hmm. I'd like to get more connection going on between the healthcare workers and the music students so we have a different kind of dialogue. Yeah, I think that will be good, because I think when you can make that connection with somebody and a real real positive emotional connection with your audience, I think that really creates a better musician. Of course, they're going to be wonderfully technically and musicality and all of that. But when you can make that connection, that's when something really special happens. So I applaud you for putting these students through this because I think it's so good for them. 
Well, thank you. I'm I'm just really grateful that I was given the ability, you know, I was given the platform and kind of given the keys to say, go talk to anybody that you think would be helpful. Um, the leadership team was really, really generous with me in that regard. Just, you know, I they're each so busy being the dean of what they do, but to have that trust also meant a lot to me. Well, Galen, I am so inspired by your story of how you have shaped your life around music. And when unexpected things happened, you listened to your body and you have just turned everything into this beautiful program that is paying it forward to other people. As we finish up, what advice do you have for musicians that are um, either wanting to go into arts advocacy like yourself, or maybe just wanting to be a musician in general? What sort of advice would you have for them? Was the last thing you said just if they want to be a musician in general? Yes. Let's start with that. Let's start with if you're you're on that track and you want to be a performing artist, a musician, I think really understanding your why is so important. And and I would never diminish someone's why. It, it could be, I want the stability of playing in an orchestra. Like, I'm not going to say that's good or bad, but really getting clear on what your why is. And shout out to Simon Sinek's book right? On, on uh, what's your why, I think, or first ask why. It's really, really terrific way to help you process through what you want to do. And similarly, when people want to come play in the hospital, I do push back to them a little bit and say, okay, why? You know, what does it mean to you? And do you understand that people might not always like what you're going to play? So it's, it's not the usual situation. Um, but when people do want to come into the hospital, the other thing I often say is, just be humble about it. Like, so know your why and then come in in service. And so you might talk to um, the volunteer coordinator or the patient experience director and say, I want to help, but then listen, don't come in and say, I want to help and I want to do X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. I want to help have these things. What would be helpful to your environment? And then, you know, just understanding that you could talk about other programs, but I, I think that all comes down to that humility of I want to be in service more than I want people to say, wow, it's really awesome that you played at the hospital. Thank you so much. Yes, let us all find our why <laughs> in all things of our lives. Galen McCormick, thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you, and I just appreciate you taking the time to teach us about this today. Well, Christine, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really, it's an honor to get to share my story and I hope it's useful to other people. Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians Versus the World podcast in my conversation with Galen McCormick, Director of Eastman Performing Arts Medicine. If you want to find out more about EPAC and the great work and research they are doing there, their website is urmc.rochester.edu slash Eastman Performance Medicine. I will have links to this website as well as some more information on music therapy and about Galen in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. In this episode, you have heard excerpts from Johann Baptist Benhall's Double Bass Concerto in C Major. This recording was performed by Galen McCormick and shared with permission. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was produced by Russ Wilkes and was hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith. Now, we are always excited to hear from our listeners, and we read every single note and email that gets sent to us. 
If you'd like to reach out to us with suggestions, questions, or just to say hi, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and now on Threads. Or you can always email us at info at frostedlens.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you.